Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Movie Chumps, episode 35, Gladiator. Let's get after it, you bastards. Here's the trailer. The general became a slave. The slave who became a gladiator. Gladiator defied an emperor. Only a famous death will do. The frost. Sometimes it makes the blade stick. You find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face. Do not be troubled, for you are in Elysium, and you're already dead. What we do in life echoes in eternity. I'm ready to run through a brick wall after watching this. Movie jumps. <laughs> Big episode here, folks. Episode 35, Gladiator. We got the return of the Mandalorian coming up on deck. Pump for that, Corey. And of course, Maximus 2024. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And the loss of icon Sean Connery, a.k.a. James Bond himself. We'll get to him in a moment. But first, uh, first five questions as the country continues to count all the votes. From <laughs> Indeed, count the votes. Election. That's right, count every vote. We're, this, we're recording this, by the way, uh, November 4th, so a day after the election. Kind of a wild one. Did you stay up a little bit to watch uh, some of the results come in? So it was, I kind of, I watched, I, listen. I, I'm a student enough to know that I knew that the answer was not going to be last night. I just right. knew it wasn't going to be. So I didn't stay up too late. You know, I, yesterday was my birthday, so I had a, you know, kind oh, of a, a long day. Oh, hey, that. happy 30th. So, yeah, I wish. Thank you. And today's my sister's birthday, so happy birthday, Cass. Oh, my um, gosh. But uh, I didn't really stay up, and I woke up in the morning, and, and I saw I, pretty much what I expected to see. Um, so I know you're much more into it than I am, but I'm just kind of waiting things out at this point we got to play the waiting game but we won't get too political because i know all you guys have been dealing with enough politics so let's get into some five questions my turn this week and we'll start with a serious one here okay is barry manilow still alive <laughs> and are you a fanalo barry manilow is dead i'm pretty sure <laughs> and I'm, I'm almost 100 percent sure he's dead and um you know, I, I like some of his hits. I like Sweet Caroline. Just like, you know, I, I don't think you really have a soul if you don't like Sweet Caroline. Um, but other than that, eh, not so much. You know, I should probably I should, probably should have looked this up before I actually asked you the question. He's still alive. He's 77. He is still alive. Okay, I th- totally thought he was dead. Full name, Barry Allen Pincus. Yeah, I'd go with Manilow, too, I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right, question two. You can have a front row seat to any president in history's Inaugural address. Who are you picking? Millard Fillmore. No. Um, let me <laughs> let me think. Uh, Kennedy's kind of I, the obvious one, right? Kennedy's kind of the obvious one. It's a little too obvious. Um, and the Obama I'm gonna one was say, wild. I'm going to say uh, Teddy Roosevelt. 
I because I he I I think he would have put on a good show. I don't know what the circumstances were behind it, but uh, uh, somebody I've always admired. Yeah, ditto. And he's like kind of a swashbuckler too, so I'm sure he would have given a a fiery you know motivational speech up there too. Mm-hmm. All right, question three about how many trick or treaters did you get this past weekend? I think we got three, something like that. We never we never get a ton, uh, but we did we. You know, obviously we didn't get a lot. We, it's interesting. We did go out trick or treating and some people, a lot of people were just having their candy out by the bowl, uh, by the side of their, you know, in front of their door rather than, you know, answering the door. Um, one dude had a slide set up. Uh, that was pretty sweet. With the candy, um, he, was with the sh- candy he, he was sitting, sitting and it was cold out. He was sitting on the side, shooting the candy down to my son and, and uh, his, who was, a. Uh, you know, going trick or treating. So it was a, it was definitely a, a different kind of, of trick or treating with COVID going on um, as well. And, and, you know, imagine my surprise when I woke up this morning and found out that COVID was still very much a thing and still very much going on around the world. I've been told for weeks that, you know, November 4th is going to hit and nobody was going to talk about it anymore. So I'm pretty surprised. Yeah. I think it was like a hundred, yeah. 130 <laughs> cases in our County, Monroe County. Yeah. Over the last it's not, hours. not so hot. Not, not looking too good. Question four. Will Je- by the way, I had zero trick-or-treaters. Zero? Saturday night. Zero. Wow. We went out, had, got a lot of candy. I, f- I, would, good. I feel like it's, it was like one out of every, I think probably like one out of every five or six houses was, was clearly they were giving out candy, meaning like they had the lights on, they had a couple decorations. Right. Um, and I feel like that's kind of the consensus from a lot of people I spoke with. What did your girls go with? Uh, Allie, my oldest went as a, like a, she wanted to go as a big chocolate chip cookie. The, the, uh, cause her and her friend, they were both going as like cookies and it's kind of lame, but they, they looked cute in the outfit, but her yeah. costume didn't come until two days after Oof. Halloween, but we knew because we got a note from Amazon, but it was supposed right. to come two days before. So she was like, it's gotta be something food related. So I went like to all these stores locally trying to get a chocolate chip cookie outfit nothing her backup was like a piece of pizza so it was like one of those realistic like big slices of pizza so okay that was cool. and then my uh, younger daughter uh julia who's nine went as she kind of created herself a uh, a jellyfish which is cool she used like an Ooh, umbrella nice. we got some lights to hook up and some streamers so it was pretty cool actually That's cool. my son went as mario riding yoshi <laughs> so that yeah. was interesting because it was like it's one of those things that you put batteries in and it blows up the yoshi so like he's he's got oh, so so he's, like waddling like, with it. it yeah. yeah, he's he's got like Mario blow up legs that are on the on the Yoshi. So and then he was putting his mustache over his mask. Um, so that was pretty. It was pretty interesting. It was cute. He liked it a lot. You so. can't go wrong with Mario, man. Good choice. No, you can't. All right. Question four: Will John Favreau find a way to fit Luke Skywalker into the Mandalorian series? And I don't mean just like mention of him. Will we see him? Maybe they show sometimes. Maybe they do some CGI crap like uh, they did with Leia in Rogue One. Will they try? I feel like he's got some surprises up his sleeve and not just the obvious Boba Fett appearance. Um, I would say in some way, shape or form. I don't think it will be uh, Mark Hamill. I don't no, think it would no. be Mark Hamill as um, de-aged. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they pulled a little Sebastian Stan, who to me always kind of looks like a young, oh, yeah. you know, looks like Mark Hamill at that age. Um, but, you know, I think we've got some, I think we've got some surprises in store this season and upcoming seasons, which I hear they've talking about doing possibly five um, that we're really, I think we're in, in store for some exciting stuff. So, 
I can't wait to talk about that in our, uh, our final segment of the show. So we'll get more into the Mandalorian. All right. Question five, final one. If you keep, if you could keep any prop from a movie, what prop are you picking? Any movie in history, any prop from a movie. I would say that I am going to either go with the Holy grail from Indiana Jones and the last crusade or the original Batman costume from 89 Batman. Michael Keaton or, hey, that's a good segue to our boy Sean Connery. It is indeed. Big loss, but expected. He was 90. I see some posts yeah. like, it was sad. Ah, oh, so sad. Yeah, kind of sad, but he was 90. This wasn't something where he was 32 and he died in a car crash. Like, And he'd been yeah. retired from the game for a while. So let's kind of celebrate his life instead of, don't give me the, oh, I'm sad. So you were sitting around thinking about Sean Connery, Facebook people? <laughs> like, come on, guys. That That's a long, full, well-lived life. life. And yeah. by all accounts... Still pretty much with it, except for about maybe the last six months. Um, I guess dementia kind of set in over these last couple of months. Um, so even his wife was saying that he wanted to go quietly in his sleep, which he did. So that was kind of a blessing. Yeah, so I know you and I was busting your balls recently over text messages. <laughs> I know you haven't seen any of the James Bond film, unless you have in the last week. Well, here's the thing. I ordered <laughs> the first three through my library. So yes. that they are there and waiting for me to be picked up as of tomorrow, I believe. So I'm going to start out with the, the three. I think it's Dr. No. Yep. Um, from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. So we'll see. So I, have a thing. I mean, the thing is, I've never I never really got into Bond until I started watching the Pierce Brosnan ones with Goldeneye back in the big mid mid, mid 90s. Ever since then, I've been a fan. Um, but I never, I still had not gotten a chance to watch the Timothy Dalton ones until I did watch them this year, which I loved. I've kind of checked in with Roger Moore's stuff occasionally, but I found it really campy and stupid. Yeah. So, and yet, and you know, now I'm kind of have, uh, a new, a treat coming up my way. Cause I've never been explored any of the Sean Connery, James Bond films. So this will be a nice, nice, uh, nice treat for me. A little post Halloween, uh, treat and semi trick but here's a testament to sean connery's catalog is you've never seen any of the, his bond films but you've got a great history with his other films mm -hmm. and connery i mean he's got such a great catalog here yes um just running down my top five here and we'll get into some i got a top five too because you told me to write one up so i wasn't gonna yes. be a twisting in the wind on that <laughs> now real quick my top five notarized starting at one last crusade I got, uh, she was just terrific in there. I got Dr. No, his first Bond film at number two. Then I got into Untouchables, him as Malone. The Rock, I loved him in there. Charming as hell, adventurous. And uh, Highlander, one of our favorites. What's your five with Connor? That's pretty, your list is pretty close to mine. Uh, my number one is, of course, as uh, Dr. Henry Jones in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Dr. Jones. I should have sent it to the Marx Brothers. <laughs> my Charlemagne. And <laughs> no, the um, my number two is uh, Juan Sanchez Villa Lobos from Highlander. Oh, I yeah, thought he yeah, was yeah. great. Uh, Malone from The Untouchables, Amen. which is where he's like, What is he? He says, You want to get Capone? Here's how, he, how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue. That's, That's the Chicago way. That's the Chicago way. So great. So good that, of course, is Marco Ramius 
in the hunt for Red October. Oh, how did I forget we about shall, the hunt for Red October? We shale into history. And finally, Mr. John Patrick Mason from The Rock, which the, the, the great lines like, losers always whine about their bash. Winners go home and fuck the prom queen. Nobody <laughs> delivers a knockout line like Connery. He does do He's pretty well. so many lines. terrific lines. But, um, but no, one of my hot takes with, uh, with Connery, and we're not going to bore you guys with Connery because I'm sure everybody's read the obituaries, but my kind of hot take with him is everybody says, oh, James Bond, James Bond. A lot of people, you know, praising the Bond films haven't really seen all of his Bond films or they haven't seen that many of them. People know mm-hmm. him more, especially folks from our age, as, you know, the elder Dr. Jones from Last Crusade and some of these other mm-hmm. films. So, right. again, his catalog is super vast. Um, even in some of the like lesser known ones, like Rising Sun, or mm-hmm. good um, mo- un- unsung film, great film. Yeah, and the one with Catherine Zeta Jones there. Uh, uh, oh yeah, um, Entrapment. Uh, yes, I enjoyed that one too. So he's got just a ton all over the place. You know, he had such charisma, and all these you know people coming out and saying that he was just a class act to be on you know on set with, and just was the quintessential. A movie star and just and it took a long time for him to even break into the industry you know 50s was spent you know s- struggling i mean he did all kinds of odd jobs he was a milkman he polished coffins for a while you know he south pacific was where he met his friend michael kane and that was a became a lifelong friendship i think that the craziest story the man that would i be king I, my dad the man favorite, would be king dad's favorite movies which apparently he keeps asking if you've ever seen but you guys have seen <laughs> several times together um i think the craziest one of the craziest stories i i read about him just to go show like what he was kind of from the old school manly man stuff is that when he was in edinburgh during the time that he was doing south pacific he got targeted by a gang called the valdor gang and I guess a whole bunch of them, Whoa. like six gang members, attacked him like at a 15-foot high balcony. And I guess he basically kicked the shit out of them. Oh, shit. <laughs> like he grabbed one by the head and another by the bicep and like banged their heads together. Like it was it, it was nuts. Like oh he did gosh. mess with, with the imposing Scott, six foot two. I love how they just call him the Scott. The Scott. Yeah. You know, and obviously had his, I think he was a great actor and a yes. good representative of Hollywood, obviously had his a uh, little bit of controversy with the tax stuff. And, you know, he was uh, kind of free handed with, with his idea of uh, hitting women, um, which I had forgotten that. Uh, what's his name? Um, that did his impression on, on Celebrity Jeopardy said that a couple of like, nice, give it a nice open handed slap to the face. And when you read like, about some of that stuff, you're like, ooh. It's like, not. it's not the best, but, you know, and I'm not trying to excuse his behavior. It's it, That's right. reprehensible. But, you know, at the same time, you know, it is, it is, it is, it is part of him, I guess you could say. So rest, rest in peace, Sean Connery, rest in power, yes. rest in strength, 90 years young. Yes. 90 years young. Indeed. All right, here we go. Gladiator 2000, a movie testament to a lot of things, Rome. Ridley Scott, one of our favorite directors, Corey. Most importantly, though, I would argue Russell Crowe. I'm going to start this out with a kind of a question to you because I think in a role like this, it's tough to be, I don't want to say it's tough to be a leading man in a role like this, but you got to, you got to showcase a certain kind of charisma where you have to be believable as a general, someone Mm -hmm. charismatic enough to be, to inspire your troops, someone you, you could assume could whoop ass in a gladiatorial arena. But you also have to have some kind of empathy where we feel for him when his wife and child die. How does Russell Crowe, I would arguably immaculately pull this off in this film? 
Yes, 100%. Um, and a lot of that is a testament to him developing that character throughout the process of filming the movie. Because that character, as he has said repeatedly, was not on the script when they started filming. They only had about 32 pages of script when they started filming. So some, some of that stuff that you see that um, kind of makes him a layered character, a sympathetic and empathetic character, a man of war who really, honestly, as cliche as it sounds, just wants to be a man of peace, be a farmer and be with his wife and his son. That you can attribute that 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 those many layers to Russell Crowe. I mean, that scene where he he you know Marcus Aurelius, played by the great Richard Harris, says, "Let's talk as men. Tell me about your home." And that whole description where he talks about his farm and what he tells his wife and son, and how the you know the earth is is black like his wife's hair. That's all Russell Crowe. He made all of that up himself. The whole um, strength and honor thing, he made that up himself. The whole um, on my signal, unleash hell. All these little things, he helped make this character come alive and come alive and breathe. And I think if you don't have those elements, you know, those little scenes where he's playing, praying to his wife and son, those little items, I don't think this becomes as believable, as memorable, as engaging as a character as it could have been. Something I noticed on the rewatch is they didn't try to pull any tricks. So hats off to Ridley Scott here. They didn't try to pull those like old school Hollywood tricks where they make Russell Crowe try to look like he's 6'3 and he's this towering, mm -hmm. imposing figure. So I think Russell Crowe also does a, a fantastic job. And it's, and it's really it's a kind of a Ridley Scott thing, too, is that he's able to pull off this kind of, you know, not machismo, but, you know, this this old school strength despite being i don't know how tall he is exactly here but i gotta say he's got to be like five i'm five eleven he ain't taller than me yeah um, he's probably like five nine five ten i don't think he's very tall yeah and yet somehow due to like the way they filmed it and i think his movements and it, this is like this clearly it's the best shape he's ever been in especially mm -hmm. it's definitely not as roger ailes in the uh no in the fox news thing which he looks no Insider, ridiculous great in there. Yes, another great one. But yeah, so I, 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 it was just something small that I really didn't pick up before. You know, you'd always hear those things about like John Wayne back in the day, where they would mm -hmm. do those low angle shots and try to make them look. Or you know, there's there's stories about Tom Cruise where he's standing on like boxes to make him look taller. But this yeah. is just unadulterated Russell Crowe kind of doing his thing here. He's one of those things I don't think you needed to make him look bigger because he already has such a commanding presence when he walks in the room or walks on set. And I think it made his triumphs in the gladiatorial ring, especially against um, Sven. As How does Sven, our old guy, our old friend there, Sven Olofsson? I forget what his name is. Um, Conan. From Conan, yes. Um, he's in, you know, his his role in that. And even the guy who played, um, oh, shoot, what is his name? Uh, Hagen, the, the Ralph Moeller is, is is the guy's name. He's he's been in a lot of. Uh, he was in uh, Three Hundred as well. He's that big, tall, strapping guy who gets you know he grabs the yes. the the food and pretends that he's choking and everything like Great that. Great character, you know, yeah, yeah. Sven Olthornson, that that's his name. You know, it, it actually made his accomplishments, Russell Crowe's accomplishments as Maximus, that much more impressive because he wasn't intimidated by size or strength because he was confident in his own warlike ability, to be honest. This is one of those roles where I remember seeing it in the theater with actually two guys who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is before they went over there. So seeing it with like these type of guys who were like kind of students of history 
was pretty cool. Like they were all, they were, I mean, I was jacked up to see this. It's just from the trailer. I mean, that trailer we watched, we played at the beginning of the episode here at the beginning of the pod wasn't the official original trailer. Um, mm-hmm. But that trailer had a lot of people excited and just, I remember seeing it at the theater and being kind of jacked up on my own, but then being with these two guys, these like future soldiers who in the ROTC program, and they were pretty pumped up too, because again, they were students of history. Do you remember when you went to, did you see it at the theater? I assume you did. Oh yes, absolutely. A couple times. What your thoughts were coming out of that, that first watch? I I was so jacked up, but I was so impressed with the visuals. I was so impressed at how much it affected me on an emotional level. Um, Even the final scene there with Jaiman Honshu, where he's like, I will see you again, but not yet, not yet. And then he has that smile and he just kind of walks away. Then there was just this sense of triumph you got. It's a very lived in real world reality. You hadn't really seen a lot of sword and sandal epics in Hollywood for a long time. You know, I walked out of there knowing that most, a lot of the stuff in there was not historically accurate, but that's completely fine. I, you know, you take that with the, with a grain of salt. And people have said that this movie actually pr- promoted them to actually go read about real life Roman history, which you know, hey, good for <laughs> Gladiator for actually actually doing that. But yeah, I remember being pumped up, thinking it was awesome, just wanted to see it almost immediately again. Yeah, uh, the 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 action, everything. There's not and many I movies com- for me where I want to go see. I could have watched it again right after. And there's not many movies I can say that about. Usually I need yeah, I to well, let it breathe, and I, I need a couple weeks before I can see it again. I was ready to go, like, the next day, man. 100%. I just wanted to turn. And that's one of those ones I, I, I those films I came out, and I immediately went home. I was like, Mom, Dad, you got to see this film. I told my parents, I, I told my friends, I was like, you got to see this film. This is amazing. And this was really, you know, Russell Crowe's, kind of coming out part. I mean, he'd already been very successful in LA confidential, which man, we got to do that movie someday. And insider is one of those gems that you, I mean, if you haven't seen it for God's sakes, it's classic Michael Mann. go and watch it. But this is what, this is where suddenly everybody knew who Russell Crowe was when this movie came out, it put him on the map. This is actually kind of, you know, it's where we were just talking about how the rewatchability after that first watch for both of us was, you know, sparkled here, but as time goes on, this is actually as much of an uplifting movie this is. And if you love action, this is for you. It's it's actually a tough watch, too. I mean, just knowing that his wife and, and son get killed and then knowing that he dies at the end. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. You know, it's thanks to Mr. Hunsu there who kind of kind of adds a little bit of optimism at the end. But other than that, you know that, you know, this ain't going to go out on a high note, really. Um, and there's so much potential too, because, you know, when he talks to the one guy there, I believe his name is Tommy Flanagan, who plays his like assistant there, Cicero, when he has mm-hmm. to get his Cicero. troops and like there's sons that, of anarchy fame. That's right. How, how like innocent, like he looks like a schoolboy in this he looks so young. Yeah. He really aged quickly, but yeah, there's really that like momentum that builds up towards, all right, there's going to be some big, like there's going to be one more major battle kind of like at mm-hmm. the beginning there. And we don't get that. And it's almost like when you watch it again, the same time, it's like you're hoping that maybe maybe he doesn't die at the end or maybe you're going to get that battle and you don't get it. Um, so there was definitely like some potential at the end. But, yeah, this is just a it's kind of a tough watch because you got to go through like an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, I mean, you go through a journey. I mean, this is a journey where the hero dies at the end. But, you Nobly. know, he- nobly but he gets his his revenge and the whole and the, and the he lives out 
Marcus Aurelius's dream, which is to turn Rome back over to the Senate. Now, historically, that's a whole load of bullshit. If you do any history, Marcus Aurelius never intended that to happen. You know, Commodus, there's no proof that Commodus, his son, killed him. In fact, he co led his co-emperor, co-Caesar, for like three years before that. Um, so, but, you know, that, those that's just minor sticking points. But again, this is just, you know, I, this is basically, you know, um, Rome fiction in, in, in some way. So you're just kind of rolling with that in that case. But yeah, you go through an emotional journey with this one. Um, it, it really, it really hits home how much his wife and family have meant to them in that brief amount of time. And then you get to back to his farm and just to see that scene pan up where you just see their burned bodies, just their legs. And just to see the look of anguish on his face is so emotionally wrecking, even though we've only heard him describe his family. We've never heard, you know, it, it's, he's never had any interaction with them. And really there's uh, only just, like and, four or five shots of his wife and son, yeah. and they, they use them like the same couple shots twice. So that almost adds like a sense of mystery to who they are too. Incidentally, his wife is actually Ridley Scott's wife. Yes. I guess they married uh, like 15 years later, they got married or something. Yeah. It wasn't like right yeah. after. Really, no, 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 Scott, no. what a sneaky son of a bitch. He like planted the yes. seed early. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> yep. But yeah, that's a, but I, um, it's a great choice of shots there too. Like you talked about where the camera pans up and you see them hanging and they almost give you the sense that maybe he's going to catch up in time to uh, the Roman soldiers who, who slay those two. And I, and I like the choice that they used where they don't show their deaths very Mad Max-like, where you just mm -hmm. see like the kid get kind of run over, but not graphically, and then you kind of know what happens next, of course. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of it, it's much more impactful that way. You don't yeah. have to see the dark, grisly death where later on he said, you know, they were burned and crucified alive. You know, you can get that impression for, from just the the detritus of what of what you see. But you you know, you made the point about the the, the amazing shots in this. We got to give recognition to John Matheson, whose cinematography is great, and I love how they did a lot of uh, multiple camera shots. They did a lot of 45 degree shutter. So you kind of see the speed up and slow down something that, you know, Zach, um, what's his name? Uh, Zach Snyder would really employ in his films kind of later, later on. But there's this gritty, grimy quality to it. That opening shot scene in Germania, that opening battle, I'll put Too that cool, up against, man. I'll, I'll put that up against, against any battle in the, in the history of, of, uh, of cinema. And I forget um, and how it's, long it's so that great. scene was. It's almost like it, it almost feels like it's like twenty. In my mind, it was like you know five minutes, and it was over. But no, they they really let they really chewed that scene up. The scene, I guess they were they were that forest that they filmed that in was like being burned down anyway. And Ridley Scott took advantage of it. And he said, "No, no, no, like we're gonna we'll film there. That'll actually I did hear about add that. to the backdrop." So that was kind of neat. Like Ridley Scott really He's, taking advantage <laughs> of uh, kind of the. They're situation. like, we'll take care of it. Don't hey, worry we'll burn about it down it. for you. No, it's all it's no, it's all good. Don't worry. Yeah, about but you could it. feel the grime. It was dirty. Um, just you know, the sound of the hooves from the horses and the fires and the outfits were perfect. And there's that blue tint to the film. I love like yes. the stock of film that they use or whatever they did in terms of color grading, um, especially with some of those scenes. It's always like when they show Rome. It's very yeah. blue, blue or yellow. Like, yeah, yeah. Love the love the tones in this film. You mentioned about. Uh, you know, my reaction when I first saw the film, one of the things that I, I remember, I the part that I remember early on seeing and going, oh, I'm in for a time here is when 
you like, you know, it, where's the messenger been? He's been gone two hours and you just see Russell Crowe's face and he goes, they say no. And that rider comes up headless. That was and you're a like, cool holy scene. shit. You know, things are, you know, about, to, about to get uh, crazy. And then him just saying, you know, at my signal, unleash hell, you know, it's so, it's so crazy. Every line of Russell Crowe's is quotable. I feel like every line, mm-hmm. he doesn't have a ton of Really, there isn't. It's not overloaded with dialogue here, right? No. Like Aaron Sorkin didn't write this thing, but it's just <laughs> not enough. at all. <laughs> it would be completely FYI. ridiculous if he did, right? Yeah. I would actually like to see that SNL skit. Uh, but there's so many nuances that Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe kind of build upon to give you a sense of Russell Crowe and who he is, who his character is. But we'll get more. We'll sprinkle in, of course, more Russell Crowe. But we got to get to Joaquin Phoenix because you mm-hmm. talked about this being Crowe's kind of coming out party for the most part. This mm-hmm. definitely was for Joaquin Phoenix as well. I mean, many of us remember him from movies like Space Camp or Parenthood. And, of course, we know it was River Phoenix's brother. Um, and in that sense, it almost had, I remember when this movie came out, almost thinking like there was like kind of like a Bobby Kennedy feel here where, all right, the chosen one type actor is dead. This is the little brother kind of carrying on that tradition. We saw that come out when he gave that awesome speech at the Oscars, Joaquin yes. Phoenix, mentioning his brother. But he is just... He's a shithead in here. He's nihilistic. He's a sociopath. But he also brings so much freaking great emotion, especially when he kills his father in the camp, that you almost, you you feel for him. Like, you see where he's coming from. And I think I love that touch in this. I do, too. And he's, you feel sorry for him is the thing that I can say. say as, As much as a sociopath as he is, as as much as he's determined of ambition, you know, he wants, he needs, he doesn't want, he needs everybody to love him, especially his dad. Phoenix, here's the thing on the rewatch, and this is where I may shock you. I don't think that Joaquin Phoenix's performance is as good as I remembered it. Exactly. Um, because, Holy cow, because, I thought the same thing. I thought the because same here's the thing. thing. There are some moments, which I will point out in a second, that made me go, wow, that was amazing. And there's other parts that are just like, that's a little dramatic and over the top. Yes. Like especially when he's first with his dad and his dad tells him you're not going to be um em- you know Caesar. He's like, you know, basically has this why don't you love me part that just feels very melodramatic and over the top. However, contrastingly, at the end of the film where he's got, you know, Lucius, his nephew next to him and he's telling he's using his the metaphor his, there. He's using the metaphor about Emperor Claudius really but the subtext is really he's talking about i know that you've betrayed me and he and it's pretty much saying if you don't tell me everything i'm gonna kill your fucking son right in front of you busy that little scene had bees. me had, had yes busy little bees had me on had me on like i was like wow that's powerful so to me yes it shows somebody it's like the it's, it's like rookie it's like rookie Derek Jeter. You see the the glimmers of the greatness yes. of what he's become going to become, but he's not quite that refined actor that you get with like 2019's Joker. So exactly, he's an acting sensation. There's brilliant moments, um, and that scene with him and Richard Har- Richard Harris too was really was terrific. And th- just mm-hmm. the, I love how they let that scene really kind of come alive. They didn't they didn't shortchange that because you need to kind of know that. Yes, Richard Harris loves his son, but, he, but he's disappointed. And he even says that. And there's that one great line where he says something like, you know, your failure as a man is my failure as a father. And you yeah. see that he feels that. Yeah, because he pulls I think, you in. And that hits you even harder because he's so honest about it. And he's trying to bring like a tender touch to the scene. 
He's trying to let he, him down. Like, look, man, yeah, I'm not passing the baton on to you, my friend, and here's why. <laughs> yeah, and he, you know, he and he he acknowledges his own failure. Yeah. as a father, father, because he and even even had said it to Maximus. You know, I've spent 25 years at this position. I've known four years of peace. And how, you know, and we fight, and he's like, what are people going to remember me by? They can remember me as the scholar, as the warlord, as the tyrant. You know, how, how are they going to see me? And the fact that he's devoted so much of his life to expanding Rome has cost him the relationship with, with, his, with his son. And ultimately, ironically, leads to his own death. But Richard Harris, in the, in the small part that he's in, oh, man. Uh, in, this, in this film, it just absolutely kills it you know you just also the, tried out for could, proximo i guess yes i did hear that you, you can hear the weariness in his voice i i'm tired maximus you know that whole aspect of it their their dynamic is, is so good over the years this movie kind of inspired me to look more into like because you know i love history especially like roman history which was interesting and he really makes that character Marcus Aurelius come alive. Now you talked about some of the historical accuracies, but Marcus Aurelius is make one of his key legacies that is that he always kind of kept this like super honest, authentic memoir with like mm -hmm. these like, you know, nuggets of wisdom. Um, Still studied today. Yeah. And Ryan holiday, I know has written brilliantly about like some of his wisdom and some of his books that he's come out with. He's just like, he studies history and he's, you know, talked a lot about, you know, like, Marcus Aurelius's meditations and and all this stuff but and Richard Harris man just like totally embodies who we think we know about Marcus Aurelius and Commodus too I mean some of the crazy stories you hear about this guy very like almost Trumpian in terms of ego you mm -hmm. know there's clearly like some I guess the kid that played Joffrey on Game of Thrones allegedly based his character or his the motivation oh. for him was uh was was Commodus here Oh, Jack Leeson. That's interesting. Yeah. That, that actually makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, clearly, that's I his character is based on Game of the, the Book. But in terms right. of like how he wanted to play it was supposedly he saw what Joaquin did and said, all right, I'm going to go that route. And, you know, Commodus was very much not his dad. I believe he was mm, actually yeah. ended up being strangled by a, a Roman wrestler named uh, uh, Narcissus. Narcissus. Actually, yeah. Which is which was originally the. Um, the name of the of Russell Crowe's character um, was Narciss Narcissus, not which Maximus. Wouldn't have worked. Decimus Meridius, which yeah, wouldn't have worked. Um, but yeah, you mentioned the whole idea, and I don't, I don't mean to get into a political thing, but yeah, his he was all about. If you could see the differences between the Marcus Aurelius character and the Commodus character in this movie, Marcus Aurelius saw his position as and that of being a public servant, whereas Commodus saw it as as his right to rule. And, and to win, which, you know, his, he said ambition was like his greatest, um, you know, virtue there. But it's because it, it's so I think one of the most fundamental parts of this movie that still gets me is when Marcus Aurelius says to Maximus, I'm going to turn the power over to you. So keep in trust so you can give this back to the Senate. And Maximus says, with all my heart, no. And to me, that is the quintessential type of person that should be in power. Those who do not want it are often the ones the best entrusted to lead. We're dropping a lot of wisdom on this episode. Let me rephrase that. You are dropping a lot of wisdom on this episode. <laughs> Corey's showing his political colors here. No, no, but that we'll is bet. a good, that it's a, it's a super good point. And it's hard not to see some of the comparisons. I remember when this came out and even like a few years later, once it started popping up on DVD and like everybody had this movie, there was clear, 
there was clear, you know, kind of people were drawing comparisons to, you know, George W. Bush and, you know, him kind of taking power and not maybe deserving it. And his father, being that's kind of, to me, that's kind of a people. stretch, but right. But I mean, that was the thing back then though. That was yeah. like, everybody yeah. saw Bush as like this guy who, you know, maybe didn't deserve the presidency because of the 2000 vote, which, you know, all the stuff in Florida. And then like his father was the one who had this, you know, impeccable life and, you know, military career and like this all American guy and his brother and his son just seemed kind of the one who was riding the coach. There was that comparison then, but remember, Things were hot and heated in those 2000s. Yeah. Once, after 9-11, once Bush. A simpler time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Jeez. And I'm not saying I see the comparisons. I'm just saying that was like, I remember a lot of people talking about that when anytime like communists got brought up or glad, oh, it's kind of like W. Bush. There was a lot of that type of type. Of well, talk. it just goes to show you how influential the movie ended up being, especially in those first couple of years. I mean, look at the, the great linebacker Ray Lewis. He watched that movie every before every game. That was his pregame ritual. As soon as it came out, he had the freaking gladiator sword over his mantle in his house. Like, you know, that he because he kind of saw himself as a maximus on the football field that whole what we do in life echoes in eternity i so love good. that that line he saw himself as a gladiator as a general and you know there's lots of people who are like that they'll watch a certain movie to get them hyped up before a big game and that was him big oscars for this one best film yep hard to freaking ignore that because this was an action i mean Actually, it's not, it wasn't an action film. I think that's kind of, that's a, that's the cheap way here. That's the bubble conversion. It's, it's, it's a maybe sword an, and sandal epic, an epic, maybe like a, a, a drama disguised as maybe an action film. Cause there's hmm. the drama here surpasses the act. I mean, there's some great action, probably some of the best action scenes I can recall in a film and they never overdo it. There's never a scene that's too long. Some of those fights are like only a couple of minutes. I think it's like the second fight where, uh, where Maximus takes on like five or six guys alone, the famous, yeah. are you not entertained scene where he kind of yep. walks out and the guys like back up a little bit, like, cause they know his reputation. That scene's really only like a few minutes. And then he does the whole throws the sword, you know, up into like the, the pullet bureau area there, which by the way, yeah. some of those fights when they're showing like the senators, I immediately Rocky thought of Four. the Rocky four where they kept cutting to, cause there's a couple scenes where I think it's Derek Jacoby. Is that his name? Was a great actor. He, I think so. He's one of the senators there. Um, the one who pretty much like becomes the emperor at the end. Um, Gracchus. Yep. Gracchus. Yeah. Derek Jacoby, I believe his name is. There's a couple scenes where him and the other senators kind of like exchange glances during mm -hmm. the fights. And I immediately kept thinking about, you know, those like fake Gorbachev guys in Rocky four who kind of look at each other once Drago starts <laughs> getting his ass whooped. Hey, so, so, but yeah, so one of the things I want to point out too, is I had a lot of fun researching Oliver Reed's character who played holy shit, man. Proximo. So this that dude freaking guys, guy, unbelievable. Every, he's uh, there's so many great. I mean, aside from Crow and Joaquin Phoenix, and I think we see eye to eye so far on everything here, every guy, everyone else here, this is like perfectly cast. And Oliver Reed steals like almost every scene. The same with Richard Harris, but Oliver Reed is Proximo. So he dies three weeks before uh, the shooting ends. So they mm -hmm. got to work him in at the end. And I always kind of noticed that when I was younger, like some of those scenes always seemed weird. Well, no wonder they yep. had to like CGI his face on yep. like somebody else's body for just a couple scenes at the end. And it's almost like if you're not paying too much attention, you don't even notice it. And some of those scenes where he's like, he lets Maximus out, 
you know, the jail and he kind of walks yep. away. It's clearly somebody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I guess he was supposed to fight uh, Maximus at one point during the film. And then they had to like rewrite the whole script and everything. So I don't know exactly yeah. how it was supposed to end, but I know he was supposed to, they were supposed to fight each other. Clearly Maximus would have whooped his ass, but still right. interesting. Well, Pro- Proxima was also supposed, the character was supposed to live. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, I this is other than um, Oliver Reed playing Bill Sykes in Oliver in 1968. <laughs> I don't remember him being in any other thing, but I loved. I've got no history like, with this actor either. So I'm not going to pretend like I know him before no. this. He's kind of like that curmudgeonly old man, though. You know, it's like that yeah. when you first introduce him, he's r- grabbing that guy's nutsack and he's like, Those giraffes you sold me, they just stand around not baiting. You sold me queer giraffes, you know, and then <laughs> right out of the gate, man. It, and, and that, but he's just get he brings so much oh, gravitas and he's so, to he's the so performance. Gravitas is the best word. Yeah. And he, that one point yeah. he looks up and he goes, Ah, oh, he goes, The Coliseum Spaniard, you should see it. You yeah, know, he's so he's yeah. so into it. He's like, it rises, and you think you're the thunder god himself. You know, it's so you you are like in it, <laughs> in it to win it with him in in that moment. You right. know, but he's also he's got that. You know, Mar- Marcus Aurelius set him free, and yeah. he's got that 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 touch. Um, but he's I, like I love the guy his at character. The football games, the high school football and basketball games, and I go to a lot of high school basketball games, even still at forty years old, just because I love the action, I love the spectacle. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. like, you know, I've seen guys there who got like their East High jackets on, or Monroe, you know, high schools that like in, from the city that don't even exist anymore. They got their jackets on from like when they played in like the sixties. And it's these right. guys that walk in and like they're they love seeing people they know and they like to be seen. And I kept thinking that's totally. Proximo's character like he's up there eating grapes in the expensive yep. seats uh just kind of taking it all in and he adds so much flavor to this movie without this this movie just doesn't work as well without his character and i just his interaction even though um you know reportedly uh, uh russell crowe and him did not get along at all they fought quite a bit and in fact russell crowe has often said that he's he, since then he's dreamed about oliver coming to him in his dreams and trying and entreating him to like speak kindly to him. And he doesn't, he's like, we just, we just didn't click. We, we didn't get along. Um, but he, you know, he is even is able to relay to, to Maximus saying, you know, I wasn't the best because I killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. He's like, win the crowd. And when you just, he, he's like, I will win the crowd. I'll show them something they've never seen before. He, there's just such a great, you know, you don't have to be friends to have a great chemistry and dynamic on the screen, as this clearly shows. But I mean, dude, as crazy, as great as his performance is, I mean, we got to take a second to just say how he died in this. Because as you as you pointed oh, out, yeah. he dies three weeks before shooting ends. But he doesn't just die. He goes out in maybe the most manly fashion of death I could ever think of. What happens is he was a raging alcoholic, <laughs> but he promised to to Ridley Scott he wouldn't drink. But he got around that by not drinking on the weekends. Well, what happens is that he decides to go to Malta on the weekend of May 2nd, 1999, in the filming. He goes into there and gets in a drinking contest with a group of sailors. And according to witnesses, he drank eight pints of German lager, a dozen shots of rum, half a bottle of whiskey, and a few shots of Hennessy cognac. Then what he does after the fact is he beats five Royal Navy sailors at arm wrestling, collapses, and dies en route to the hospital. I mean, 
That's that is just a bad shit. That is a batshit way to die. I mean, that's like you. What's the manly like? What's the manliest way that you can think that you can die? This is it. I almost <laughs> wish I know. I read that too. And I, as you were reading that, because I had the notes on that too, I was going to mention that. But you started reading. That, I'm like, okay, good, because we have to mention that. that should be the lead of this podcast. The hell! Is, <laughs> it almost it almost makes his death in this movie seem ultra lame. Almost as queer, yeah, seriously almost as queer as those giraffes that he mentions at the beginning. <laughs> Like they, this is yeah. the way he should have went out, but no, that's this guy sounds like he, there's so many great stories about him. Like I'm sure if we did a deep dive, we could find more. But I saw that too, and I was like, "Are you freaking kidding me? How did I not learn about this guy and the way he died before like tonight?" I mean, the only thing that would have been manlier is if on the way to the hospital he busts out of the ambulance jumps on top of a T-Rex, downs like four stakes and rides off a cliff into a fireball. I mean, like, this is just the craziest way to die that I could think of. Uh, so Maximus, I was thinking about this too. And, you know, when I watch this movie now, there's, there's definitely what I like to call Game of Thrones goggles, which is you factor in kind of the, <laughs> the real world, I guess, as Kissing, Henry Kissinger once called, you know, real politique, which is kind of, realism in politics right you do what you can at the moment to win a specific you know event or not an event a political matchup or if you will mm -hmm. so maximus kind of seals his own fate here as i'm on the rewatch i look back and i think oh i would have done things a lot differently especially after watching where game of thrones really brought this kind of like i guess you could call it hardball hardball politics to life right and at one point where after uh, Commodus kills Marcus Aurelius, his father, you know, he asked for Maximus' support, and Maximus kind of brushes him off. Like, he doesn't agree to support yeah. him. I was thinking, that's the foolish move right there, right? I'll offer you my hand one time, brother. <laughs> yeah. And then, boom, like, Maximus is there. Stupid move. If he, if, he if he agrees to support him or whatever, he lives. But that's just something that kind of jumped out at me, you know, uh, in light of game of thrones and what that's kind of done and kind of changed our thinking, I think is like as TV and movie viewers. I think the other thing too, is you've got to look at in terms of the moment itself, Yeah, because you know, he walks in there guy who's essentially his, his dad, you know, pretty right. much is dead in the bed. He knows instinctively that comma just killed him. So he's wrapped up in that emotion of anger sure. and grief and basically, you know, he offers his hand and it's a big fuck you and walks away. <laughs> Not the smartest move, but he's probably acting from an emotional position rather than a logical one in that case. And I totally agree. And I'm not against the decision for him to do that. No. But I just thought, like, as I was watching it, and I always try to think, what would I do in this situation? I'm thinking, oh, come on, Maximus, don't do it. Don't do it. But there's there's another thing that I wanted to point out. And it's not necessarily a nitpick, but it's something that I kind of struggled with on the rewatch. And that is, I don't know if, so we get the sense that, very subtle, clearly Maximus was in love or dated or whatever, courted um, what's-her-face there. Connie Nielsen's Lucilla. character. Lucilla. Connie Nielsen. Clearly there's a history there. They were in love. Something was there before Russell Crowe's regular wife, the wife mm -hmm. who died. And clearly there's like, I think Marcus Aurelius mentions Commodus and Maximus's history. Like you've known him since you guys were younger. What I don't remember the yeah. exact wording. Either. Commodus is not a moral, no moral man. <laughs> yeah. You should know this. Doesn't he say that you should know? This yeah. Or something you like know that. this. <laughs> yeah. So clearly they got a history too. Is 
as bad as Commodus is, and I get it's it's a movie, they have to do this, they have to make this decision. I feel like if this is for real, Commodus, there's no way he goes out of his way to kill Maximus's wife and kid. I just don't see it. I don't think it's earned. Small nitpick. Um, so I think I, I understand your, your point, and I, I, it makes sense in the fact that basically that was added into the script to give his character more motivation. Which I'm cool which, with. I'm cool with. Which, which yeah, it, I'm, I'm cool with, but I, I totally get your, your logic. Would he, would he go to that extreme? But right. again, at the same time, I mean, it's very clear, especially as the, as the movie un, unfolds, that, you know, this, that Commodus is very much of the uh, scorched earth (laughs) policy. Like it's not just a matter of defeating your enemies. It's obliterating them, their friends, their family, you know, till they're dust. So I guess in that retrospective, it does make sense, but I can definitely see your, your point of view in that sense. Yeah. That's my only Um, thing is uh, come on, do we, but again, you need that. Cause if you don't, if they're still alive, I guess maybe that's maybe part of the motivation for the whole movie. If they, they would have to totally rewrite it and maybe they change it around where like, does he get home to see his wife and kid? And maybe he dies from his injuries as he arrives. So, but that was also my, that was also one of my one net nitpicks in terms of a, uh, consistency shooting premise. His hair grew a lot uh, from when he escapes from those soldiers to suddenly he's on the road and his hair is much longer than it was before. Um, oh, so that yeah. was one thing. And he has a, has a little slight nitpick. But you brought up something that we have not really talked about that we really need to is how am- amazingly brilliant and awesome Connie Nielsen's performance is in this movie as Lucilla. She was tough in there. Noble, she's regal. You don't like her at first as the viewer. Her character is sly. She's cunning. She's independent. She's smart. She's resourceful. She does what she needs to do to survive. And I think you know everything. What'd you say? This role, I believe, out of all the, the the headlining roles here, all the roles that we kind of, the people that we quote from this movie, she's the one that kind of gets left in the dust. I don't think it's a bail. I don't think it's like a sexist thing at all. I just think for whatever reason, how good she was is often forgotten because of so many of the other these other big roles. Yeah, and it's not like she's getting overshadowed no, not by, at all. by Joaquin Phoenix or Russell Crowe in the scenes that she's in with them. She holds her own. You know, I think that, that you know all you need to know about this character when immediately after Russell Crowe leaves that room and Marcus Aurelius is dead, she is crying, slaps Commodus in the face twice, and then kisses his ring and says, Hail Caesar, because she knows what he did but she knows what she has to do in order to survive and that that scene between her and maximus in the um in the dungeon when you know she's trying to convince him to meet with gracchus and and all this stuff and he like is holding her by the throat and says my son was innocent and she doesn't bat an eye and says so is mine you know just trying to get him to see beyond his own vengeance uh for for a moment i think she holds her own in everything and even when at the end when he's dying she says go to them and then just looks around at the men and says he was a soldier of rome honor him you know it just gives you goosebumps i you know it's weird i love those i love those especially at the scene at the end there's part of me that it feels a little over dramatic at times a little melodramatic but it still works and i don't care and i think that's mm-hmm. why that's why that's what makes movies like this kind of stand out and makes them so rewatchable you don't even give a shit it's the same no. way. It's the, the, the best comparison I could think of is like when Roy Hobbs hits that final home run at the end of the natural. And yeah, okay, a couple of the lights are probably going to like get blown out. <laughs> Not every of them. It shouldn't look like, you know, a nuclear plant exploded. <laughs> 
and it's not but you don't rain. even care you don't care you're just like whatever man this works this is why i come to the movies and that uh that is a great scene now here's something i thought of too on the rewatch here there's so much to talk about with this this might end up being a long pot we have to cut it short just because of that um no <laughs> no not at all damn it never so, so the kid lucius i like you spaniard i shall cheer for you cute kid i liked him perfectly cast is are they trying to drop hints that maybe this is like Russell Crowe's son or are they just trying to are they trying to have you they want him to kind of almost think of him as a son because Russell Crowe obviously lost his earlier in the film I I don't know like I, I never really got a sense of that that you know like he was like the real, the real baby daddy or something like I that didn't until this time and I was I wasn't sure if they were trying to sneak that in clearly he said he's named after his father Cassius who we don't know how right. he died or Lucius, excuse me. Lucius, Lucius Verus, who was actually a real life person who also did rule, co-rule with um, Marcus Aurelius for a while in, in ancient Rome. I do like um, how they use the real names, some of the real names yes, in history. I do too. I never really thought that that was the case. And even so, I don't think it like overshadowed situations. No, not at all. But I just, that was just like a fun little, fun little uh, something to point out. Let's talk about some of those action scenes. Do you have a favorite battle, Corey Cook? <laughs> Um, I think, I think the one where he, um, uh, fights Titus of Gaul is pretty cool. <laughs> right. Our I like from, that uh, one. Conan. Our verb, yeah. Sven Olin Thornson. And the, obviously the opening scene in Germania is great, but I just love that scene where it was like the second time I think he was out and he's out in the provinces and he comes out and just takes out everybody in like five seconds. And the one where he just sticks those two swords in the guy's chest, takes him out and then just cuts his head off. It's I was almost like, like a, when, he, when he leaves those swords in the guy, it's almost like a mic drop until he, yeah, seriously, and, you know, goes Anakin Skywalker on the dude. And I then basically throwing the sword into the, into the gallery is just like a giant double finger to everybody there. You know, I think my favorite might be the whole, uh, you know, the, the, the battle of Carthage scene against Hannibal. That's pretty cool. Romans are supposed to win. Yeah. Uh, that was fun because you see for the first time you see, not the first time you see him, he becomes almost general Maximus again, right? Where he's kind of yes. like, he's got the sword. Single column. Gonna, Single uh, column. He's pointing out like where they're going. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Like he's calling the shots, the shot call. That actually sounded like Russell Crowe. Do that again. Single column. Single column. <laughs> That's gonna be my like text message alert. I'm just Hold the line. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'm going with that as my favorite battle. But yeah, that opening scene might be. That's underrated too. It's great. And we also we haven't even talked about Jaiman Honshu much, you know, who plays uh, I think Juba I think is his, is his character's name in this, but he he's a nice Give it little a sequel. They should have uh, a yeah. sequel with which we will talk about the oh bad shit sequel. Oh my god, let's that, talk about that now because it's so freaking well, ridiculous. Well, before we get to that, let's let's give Jaiman Honshu his due though as Juba. I mean, I think he was a great little foil for Maximus in this movie. I thought he had some of the the you know some great lines like you know you have a great name, they have to kill your name before that you kill they kill you, and I just love that he he often provides some of the the comedy too. Where he's like. What do you say? You know, what do you are those your family? And he's like, do you believe that they hear you? And it's like, what do you say to them? This is to my boy. I tell him to keep his head down to his wife. That's none of your business. And they just kind of like share a laugh uh, with each other. But I think he, he gets underrated as an actor. You know, he's had some amazing performances in Amistad, and he's, and he's got Blood an Oscar, Diamond, doesn't he? 
Yes. Blood yes. Diamond. He's, he, he got nominated for that, and he got nominated for Amistad as well. Oh, he didn't win for Blood Diamond? No, he didn't win for Blood Diamond. Oh, okay. But, hey, nominated is just as good. Yeah, he's kind of uh, fallen off. He was in some of the Marvel movies too, wasn't he? Yes, he was in, in um, he was in Guardians of the Galaxy. That's and right. he was actually also recently uh, in uh, Shazam a couple <laughs> years ago. Yeah, he's definitely been uh, forgotten. But he had a run there, man, in the early uh, 2000s, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he has, of, he has a lot of humanity too. And I love the, I love the chemistry between him, uh, Russell Crowe and the big bulky dude there, um, who tries, he almost sacrifices himself or he does Hagen. sacrifice himself during that scene where he eats the food just to make sure there's no poison. Yeah. In it. That there, was great. Those three, man. If this was like, this could be a TV show. I remember thinking, this I would be watch a great that in a heartbeat. Couple episodes, right? That's like the first two episodes. And then you got those three, like just, whooping ass across the Roman Empire. That would be fun. You, you mentioned Hagen, played by um, uh, Rolf Mueller in, Ralph Mueller in this uh, movie, but it's, it's just so, goes to show how amazing Maximus can inspire people because his character is from Germania, the place where, he, you know, where Maximus just came from and kicked his fellow kinsman's ass, and yet he inspires this loyalty. To yeah, him. you know, even as he's like, you won lots of battles in Germania, and he's like, lots of places, you know. <laughs> That's so. such a great answer, too. Yeah, and they had that little laugh there. It's almost like kind of mm-hmm. like the last uh last supper. Yeah, I wanted another battle with like those three in the arena one more time. That mm-hmm. would have been nice. Again, it's a real estate thing, man. All right, let's talk about this bullshit sequel here. Jesus. By Nick Cave, who I guess is best known as like a he's kind of like a kooky rock star, if you will from australia so maybe that's where like the connection is because russell crowe right also from australia correct yeah nick cave i mean you got to google this guy he's just kind of an kind of an odd looking scary looking dude but anyway so he's the one who supposedly was approached by russell crowe and some of the others to rewrite like kind of like come up with like a sequel where i guess maximus is reincarnated by roman Mm -hmm. gods he returns to rome to defend his son and his Christian companions, but they're like traveling through time. So Maximus yep. fights in anywhere from from like Vietnam War, World War Two, you know, the Crusades. Yep. Or this says, quote, before ending up working at the modern day Pentagon. Because, you know, that's where you would expect Maximus <laughs> to end up is as a bureaucrat in the fucking Pentagon. Look, I've had some stupid ideas for sequels before. Yeah. Even, even in this, I kept thinking. I, this was such a good movie after I saw it like the first couple times I thought, Oh my God, is there like, is there room here for, for, is there, could they squeeze out a sequel? You don't have to bring Russell Crowe back, but just give us more Rome. And I love the way they, you know, clearly there's a ton of CGI here, but they make it work. You know, mm-hmm. this wasn't shot on any location in Rome. Right. Uh, and I've been to Rome and Coliseum wasn't that big. So <laughs> clearly they're having some fun here, but other than that, you just love being in this world. And I've come up with some stupid sequels before. And you got, you have an opportunity with uh, Mr. Hansu here. Definitely there would have been a cool sequel with him. But this stupid freaking idea of him traveling <laughs> through time and fighting, as much as, as fun as that would have been, that would have totally been, that would have been the ultimate shark jump. 
Yeah, that that was just an awful idea. I mean, it's almost some, some something like Osimo the robot from South Park would come out with. You know, <laughs> where he was constantly putting out ideas for Adam Sandler goes to an island and falls in love with a coconut. I mean, this is just so outlandish and stupid. And Gladiator's not one of those films that even in any way, shape, or form needs to have a sequel. It's fine just on its own. Right. So you know, there's there's no reason to get sequelitis and try to go through with something like that. Sequelitis. Hey, we got to give a shout out to. Uh... Hans Zimmer here, not only one of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, composers, and I know yours as well, but this is yes. one of those films. I know we've kind of not debated the music at some of these movies that we've discussed over the last, you know, six or seven months or what am I talking about? 11 months or so. Um, but this one is 11 years. There's like three or four uh, melodies here that like have always been in my head since this movie came out in 2000. I mean, there's the uplifting stuff. There's the action stuff. There's like the one melody that they use where there's like a woman singing. Yeah, Lisa Gerard. Just such incredible, such an incredible score. Uh, Probably top three or five for me, movie scores. Yeah, it's right up there. Again, like we've talked about before, you know, Hans Zimmer just hits triples and doubles and does whatever he wants. You know, there, day, I, man. I have yet to hear a bad Hans Zimmer score because doesn't he puts exist. everything. It, it really doesn't. It doesn't exist. It just, it just is, is, you know, there's different levels of how good they are. And this is one of those Remember, I was listening to it recently. I think just within the past week, it's a great score to listen to. And it's, it's accentuated even more by, you know, the lovely melodies and, and uh, vocalizing of Lisa Gerard, um, the Australian musician who had, there was some, some excellent points where she was singing, especially like when Maximus was, uh, you know, carrying over into the next life and things like that. It was so haunting and beautiful. All right, friends and neighbors, it's time once again for Luke and Corey's WRL. What are we watching, reading, and listening to? But before we get into what else we're watching, we're going to take a moment to discuss something that we're going to be watching on a weekly basis and talking about in this podcast for the foreseeable future. And that, my friend, is season two of The Mandalorian dropped this past Friday, episode one of season two. It's almost like a joke. I love this episode, by the way, and I love this whole I love the whole idea of the show that John Favreau's in charge. He's uh, he's a lifelong Star Wars fan like us, so you got to have a fan who's actually creating this. And of course, he's got so much bona fides because of freaking what he did with the Iron Man stuff. So mm-hmm. we know Favreau. Let me start by saying it does seem like every episode now is like, okay, let's give the Mandalorian, let's give Mando like a bunch of some crazy task to do. Yeah, right? it's like a uh, what should I call it? Hunt it's it's almost wild becoming like chase it's, it's yeah wild like goose. saturday it's, night lives yeah like, well, okay, what can you find hey you're gonna get laid but here's what you have to do first you have to find, <laughs> right. you have to find the shovel that you know the woman who's who you're about to sleep with her father lost it in the caves last night so you have to yeah. find that and then you'll have her hand in bed it's just like what kind of task can we come up with now for Amanda? but i'm cool because in the process of these tasks we get to see what we've wanted to see for decades, Corey, and that's more of the Star Wars world. So I'm totally on board with these tasks. So it's I, almost I using, gonna rip on it. it. It's almost using it as a vehicle to see more of that world, yeah. in, in my yeah. mind. Um, you know, and they're very much playing up this is a Western trope. Very much so. The guy Space who, Western. who Space Western who blows into town to help the village against, you know, in this case, a, a, a real crap dra- dragon who we've never seen before. We've heard about him and never seen before. And Apparently, they're tough enough to one. eat Sarlaccs. What? Supposedly, we've seen the bones of one. I didn't realize that. We've seen I saw the bones on of one. 
Now, yes, we've seen them. Did you know right away when they showed the crate dragon where you're like, hey, that's got to be the thing from. Uh, I, I, you know, I when I showed the bones, I knew it was crate dragon just because of like I've read. the. You've books read more like the that. Book. Yeah. Yeah. But I just love the fact that it was very much a Western motif. And he's going there because he's trying to find another Mandalorian to help guide this, you know, get the child back to his race, whatever it may is and said. And instead he runs into somebody who's just, you know, um appropriated the Mandalorian armor, which is clearly Boba Fett's armor. Let's call a spade a spade here. That is 100% Boba Fett's armor. Oh, absolutely. And we all um, knew he's, we all know the actors coming back who played Jango Fett. So we know it's Boba Fett at some point is going to come up in the series. That's been the talk. Those are the rumors out. So we know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And we saw yeah. the kind of scene in last season where, you know, we see like an unknown figure just show up and it's assumed mm-hmm. to be both. And that was on Tatooine, I believe, wasn't it? When he was on Tatooine uh, earlier. Something like that. Yeah. But, what, but as ba- soon as t- Timothy Oliphant, is that how you say it? Oliphant? Yep. Oliphant? Timothy Oliphant as Cobb Vanth in this <laughs> What movie. a great or, Star Wars name. Cobb yes. Vanth. It sounds like Mike Tyson saying Vance. Cobb yes. Vanth. <laughs> Cobb Vanth. <laughs> but as soon as he shows up in that outfit, you know that that ain't Boba Fett, right? Like the way he's wearing it, it's almost like a yeah. kid, like a like a brother, like an older brother putting on his younger brother's outfit. Nothing quite fits fit. right. Doesn't doesn't fit right. And immediately once he takes it off, you're like, all right, this isn't him. But I gotta ask your immediate thoughts at the end of the episode. You know, I love to jump to the end here. That's the big talker. That's got that's Boba Fett, right? One hundred percent, that's Boba okay. Fett. Yeah. I, I don't see Clearly how it's the how, actor. I don't know what else. It's one hundred percent the him. actor. Yes, but it's it's absolutely Boba Fett because I mean yeah. you can see the scars on his face that have clearly been from I would think the Sarlacc. Yeah. Um. I, I don't see how that's not Boba Fett, and it's going to be interesting to see how this factors into um, you know the 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 upcoming of 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 the rest of this this show, uh, but. Yeah, that that's 100% him in my mind. Here's the elephant in the room for me. And I don't mind it, but it is something that I can't stop thinking about is we know what happens in the sequel trilogy with Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and all those guys, right? With, uh, mm-hmm. with Ray and Luke and Leia and all those guys. So there's only so much they can do. I, there's a ton they can do here. Don't get me wrong. There's a ton of space to play with. There's a ton of sand in the sandbox to, to, ha- to have some fun with here for Favreau and the gang. But at some point, they have to explain why Mando or maybe Baby Yoda don't play a role in the other ones. Now, I granted you could say, well, the, the universe is huge. Why would they have to play in the role in these final fights? But I feel like with Baby Yoda if they keep him alive after this whole thing, wouldn't aren't, aren't people going to be wondering where the hell was, I was really hoping in rise of Skywalker that baby Yoda was going to make an appearance and they were going to somehow like somehow it was going to tie in. I feel like if it was the Marvel movies, they would do that. They would tie in. I don't know how, what are they going to do with this, man? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, I love Lucy, Lucy, you got some planning to do. I mean, they're really going to have to explain the situation, but you know, here's the thing. The Mandalorian has been so good and John Favreau has just done such a good job. I trust him. I yeah, trust I that he's, that the story worried. is, is going the way it, it's supposed to. I want it on record. I'm up. not worried. I'm not worried at all. Yeah. I just, but that's something in my head. 
it need it does in some way needs to be resolved. I I think. Um, but overall, I, I loved this this episode. I love how the town comes together. I love how they bond with yeah. the the sand people, the Tuscan Raiders, who are basically stand-ins for Indians. Let's be honest here. Um, you know, bonding together to try to to fight the crate dragon. I love how that is so cool that he like jumped into his mouth and blew him up from the inside. It was like that was tremors. so badass. And what I thought, what I didn't find out till after the fact was so great is that the bartender in it was actually W. Earl Brown, who is that's a reunion between him and timothy oliphant from the deadwood days because oh, no w shit. earl brown played the um the bartender dan doherty in deadwood and it was great i Good guess because when they when when they when they came together um they started riffing and doing doing old like deadwood lines and and favreau came in and was just laughing and watching because he loved the show he's like keep going i still you know, haven't he's seen like, that whole thing now i gotta watch he, it Oh, Deadwood? Oh, you got to watch it, man. Watch the whole thing and watch the movie, too. It's great. My dad loves it. He loved it back then. He was always pipping it out when it was on HBO. And I've had some good buddies over the years at future uh, past workplaces that have said, man, you're cheating yourself by not watching it. So I'll definitely get on that train. But uh, I'm trying to think if there was some other big things that popped out of me with The Mandalorian. I knew somebody was going to show up. I knew because I, I I like I feel like it's the first episode. They got to have a big mm-hmm. surprise. And clearly the Boba Fett appearance or who we assume is Boba Fett. We know it's him uh, shows up. But I'm pumped for I love Rosario Dawson, one of my favorite yes. actresses. We know and the rumor is a Sako. She's going to be a Soka, a Sako Tano, a Sako, a Soka, a Tano. Yeah. The rumor that's who would would be about right because her her character about at this point would be about in her early 40s, maybe early to mid 40s. Um her story is actually very cool. If you ever look into it, her she got some uh, excellent amount of depth and nuance in the Clone Wars cartoon, but also into the Rebels cartoon. As I've well. only so read about cool. some of those appearances, but uh, yeah, I've I've done a little digging on the backstory, and I just think it'll be neat to see kind of a Jedi in that realm again. All right, I'm gonna mm-hmm. it's gonna be fun to see a lightsaber light up, and I really do think they're gonna work in going going back to my five questions at the beginning i really do think somehow they got to work in skywalker or somebody from the original not that they have to keep doing that every freaking time a star wars thing comes out but it is fun i think they're going to do that so so yeah good uh good uh good debut i'm excited for friday all right what else are you watching sir Two other things. Wait till you see the second thing I'm going to mention. Uh, one is the sleepover. It was called. It's on Netflix. Good family film. Um, had a lot of fun watching that with the girls and the wife the other uh, the other night. Until so. the cocaine showed up. Yeah, and speaking of cocaine, <laughs> uncut gems was the other thing I watched <laughs> for the first. Great segue, by the way. That worked out. So good. I that movie. I there's been so many jokes about it since it came out. This is the first time I watched it this past week because we got Netflix again. And I was it's like, great, oh my right? God, uncut. Stupid me. I watched it 1130 at night the other night. Oh, bad move, man. I'm like, ah, this can't be, this can't be as high octane as they say. I was getting anxiety. I don't get anxiety that easy. <laughs> I was getting anxiety. Like the couple times I stopped and I went to the kitchen. I was like, I got to eat something. Like I got to <laughs> <laughs> get a stress eat. I got to like get a sandwich or I think I made myself a sandwich. This is how I eat. And that crazy (laughs) and the crazy. And I don't want to like say anything because I don't know if people are ready to pause the podcast for a minute, but that bonkers ending, which wasn't really that really bonkers at all. It was just kind of semi abrupt. Yeah. But it worked. And just the pacing of that and the way they shot that and the way that you wanted to slap the shit out of Adam Sandler for doing so many stupid things in there. Yeah. Oh my He's, God! The, the brothers who created that. Yeah, yeah, super the Safety brothers. 
And uh, yeah, shout out to those guys, man. And of course, my boy Kev- Kevin Garnett, KG from Great, my beloved Boston Celtics. Hey, give him some more roles out there. But those are my big that, watches. That movie was so batshit when I watched it, and I was just <laughs> I loved it. And you're right, I I have never been more anxious in a movie in in a long time that I can. Yeah. Think of. It was so anxious, especially that last, you know, 15, 20 minutes is crazy. Where he's like, and, break, you know, where he's watching was, the game. Everyone was saying, oh, Adam Sandler deserved an Oscar nomination. This and like, oh, come on, really? And I watched this like, yeah, they're not wrong. Because um, he was he, really he, good that, in there. That was the performance of his career. That, and that is his best performance since Punch Drunk Love, in, in my mind. And he was um, also funny without being Adam Sandler funny. Yes. Yes, like, he had exactly. some really funny, like, quirky things, like just the way he would, like, talk to people and... Uh, come on, KG, you know, just the way he would kind of bullshit yeah. with people and bust balls, just, uh, yep. definitely a good character actors in there too. So, um, yeah, excellent. Casting so, was awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent movie. loved it. So glad you dug it, but yeah, yeah. stupid move watching that at 1130. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so what else did you watch and that that's it for you? Those are my big three, man. Okay. So big for four. me, so for me, uh, Watch some more, but we're already into the holiday specials. Watch some SpongeBob Christmas stuff. Yeah. Uh, started walking, watching. I, I don't know why we're so entrenched with it, but we watched the holiday baking championship and we watched like every year. And it's just something about it that we really like. My son really enjoys it. But what I watched yesterday and I texted you a little bit about this. Oh yeah. It was the most bananas thing. I think I've seen in, in like, in like forever it was on espn2 and it was poke like the pogo stick championships i mean it was insane like they had they had um you know all this different freestyles it was so serious first of all it was in the middle of pittsburgh but it was like in the middle of ghetto the ghetto like there was the, it was just insane it was like in a like, it's like in a parking lot somewhere uh-huh. and the the people who were doing the color commentary, I swear to God, are exactly how you would expect them to look. And they were so into it. And there was this one, the guy, this one guy said, because uh, the one guy was going for his like sixth in a row. And he's like, Tom Brady, the Pittsburgh Steelers, this guy, they're all seeking their sixth championship. <laughs> and I'm like, is this, is this, is this real life? And like the, the, the name of the guy who was leading was like Tone Stacks. It was like Come the on. weirdest, like it was so strange. And one of the moves was called a Jackie Chan. Like, I can't make this shit up. It was the most unbelievable. And my wife and I were just like mesmerized. You talk wish, about alternative viewing on election night. It was insane. You know, there's that thing Twitch out there, right? Where people like record themselves playing video games. And it is surprisingly entertaining to a point. Mm-hmm. I would like to see a Twitch where it's just you and your wife watching some bullshit like that. <laughs> That would actually be entertaining. Inject that into my freaking veins, please. That that would be interesting. We were like just we were mesmerized. It was so beyond. And the funny thing is, is they kept every once in a while they would spray in that ESPN the Ocho from uh, like dodgeball. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, you're right, was, right, right. Which was which is hysterical because that's exactly what it what it seemed like. But uh, yeah, it was high quality entertainment there, man. Loved it. All right, sir. What are you reading? One interesting article, and I just pulled it up, which I think is worth the read in today's social media age. Article in Esquire.com is called Life Inside an L.A. Mansion Full of TikTok Influencers. 
God, that sounds like a nightmare. But man, it's such a fascinating read for how goofy these people are. And I get look, that would be a cool. I would, I always say that would be the awesome full-time job. Just making YouTube videos. I would have a ride. I loved having a cam. I loved borrowing the camcorder from, you know, a couple of my uncles, like when I was a kid and making stupid skits, like with my buddies, love that stuff. So that would, to a point, I, I, I enjoy it, but there's so much like nihilism and just ego involved and mm. it's too everything is like so based on you know likes and, and all that stuff but this is the sub headline of the article i want to read you a funny quote millions follow them on social media but the 20 somethings living together in the quote clubhouse say few really have a clue what goes down in a day and it's pretty much some of these tiktokers these you know good looking young women in their early 20s or so about all the things you know they're doing to you know stay stay fit and healthy and making sure their outfits are, are, uh, are top notch. But there was one quote like you and I do. Absolutely. But there's one quote that I got a kick out of where the one girl goes, quote, the hardest part about being an influencer is the credibility of the industry. People don't understand how hard we work, (laughs) which I just find funny. Like my dad's a carpet installer. Like, that's some good old school blue collar work right there. Right. And these guys are like taking photos and brushing their hair. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I don't really, I don't realize like how much hustle you guys got going on. I don't feel your pain. LA mansion. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, That's so that, crazy. so that was fun. It was just, I, I read a lot of articles, so I, you know, I don't always kind of write them down, but I should start for this, this uh, segment, but I'm also still reading, as I mentioned last pod, what it takes about the 1988, U.S. presidential election. And I'm surprised I didn't realize this before. The writer, Richard Ben Kramer, he's a local guy, a Brighton High School oh. grad. He's a Rochester. Oh, really? And then the book nice. won the Pulitzer. So um, shame on me for not knowing that. So that's what I'm reading. Cool. I'm dancing a lot of articles. Uh, still reading Troubled Blood by Robert Gilbraith. I'm about 600 pages in. I'm just tearing through that thing. It's so good. Just like it, all the, the previous Corman strike novels have been great. This one's just as good. Um, I read an article about the, the Johnny Depp, uh, Johnny Depp case that was going on over in England where basically the, he was got ruled against. So that was kind of interesting. What a fucking shit show nightmare that and his, his marriage was to Amber Heard. Good God. Um, I read a very interesting speaking. This kind of dovetails nicely into your article that you read about TikTok billionaires or, you know, TikTok, you know, millionaires in their mansions. I read a very interesting article and I cannot remember the name of the business, but they specialize only in basically creating honeymoons for billionaires and the insane Whoa. shit that they do for these couples, like one of them was they had to make sure that there were 16 different type of condoms. Another one was that they had to pay $7,000 to have a, um, a, a Formica sink put, moved up like 18 inches because the woman didn't want to bend over. Apparently there was that. There's this other thing like a base. You have to you. They're called. You're called the meat. There's this thing you're, where you're the. If you're a lower member of the of the company, you're called the meat person, which means you actually have to follow the. Uh, cuts of beef that are transferred from one station, one area to another along the vacation, because a lot of people are kosher and whatnot. You have to be with that. Another person had to go and like stay at this place because she had to go down at five o'clock every morning and get the, the, the best chairs possible for the beach. One of them actually put in a new beach because it got washed away because of a storm. It was like insane, like cuckoo bananas. What a business though, to start that, right? Like, yeah catering to rich folk and their honeymoons yeah it, it's it's insane and the last thing i, I read and i 
I rarely get political on this on this show because you know we're, we're a movie podcast. We won't don't want to go into too much, but I, I did feel the need to bring this up as I read an article in Reuters, which is a great news website if you ever want to go to, basically talking about how the last four years has really polarized American families and the damage that it's done. You know, I, I was just sitting there reading articles about. You know, this 21-year-old says, you know, you're no longer my mother and, they, you know, friendships have ended and you know, relationships have ended. And listen, I get that Trump is an incredibly polarizing person, and, but I just could never see, like, just calling off my, my – my dad is a Trump supporter. Like, my, and I have another good friend that's a, that's a Trump supporter. I don't – can't see myself cutting them out of my lives because I think there's a tendency to – you know, just automatically assume that they're all racists and homophobes and, and and all this stuff. And I can I can personally tell you that that's not the case. I know these people. I, I think they're wrong. I think they're misguided. I don't agree with their politics, but I wouldn't cut them out of my lives. You know, and so it's 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 an interesting thing to see that. Now, having said that, I I will say this. <laughs> I will say this, even I though all those I people I just mentioned out of my life. <laughs> no, even though I, you know, I know these people and I, I, they aren't those people. They're not homophobes. They're not racist. They're not, you know, white supremacists and things like that. However, I, I think it would be uh, wrong of me to not say that voting for Trump, you are voting for an amoral narcissist who's completely lacking compassion, empathy, and and common human decency, and who has done multiple things that are horrible that aren't fake news, and that's not something I'm going to sugarcoat because I'm not because I don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings. That's just the facts. Um, but I just, this this whole nonsense of just cut, cutting somebody completely out of their lives because of their political views, as, as batshit as Trump is, I just don't I just don't see it. I could you'd have to do a lot for me to to do that. So I'm the I'm I'm in the exact same boat as you. I, I voted for for Biden yesterday. What's today? Wednesday. I voted yeah. for Biden yesterday, and I have a me bunch too. of family members, some good friends who are Trump supporters, um, more so because not because they believe everything that he believes, but just for whatever reason, a lot of them had just have different reasons for, for supporting him. And I've had conversations with them. It's not like, and I think almost social media is another case where I think social media is making it worse is you've got people lecturing all day long on why you shouldn't vote for them. So it almost turns like the culture, the American culture now into like this almost civil war vibe. Mm -hmm. And I just don't get to the point. I, I can't get to the point where I'm cutting anybody out of my lives because of who they support. Now, if they liked everything they did and they, they thought he was Jesus Christ reincarnate here. Um, Here's the thing is that it it's you mentioned social media. And I think there's this tendency to have this polarization, yeah. to have this this or, or, or us versus them mentality. Yes. Things are black and white. It's either false one thing or another. And, 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 and you, yeah, exactly. It's a false narrative. It's a false dichotomy because you know what? That's not real life. It's Absolutely. not real life then. It, it's never been real life. Discourse and life lives in the gray area. Things are very, very rarely that black and white. Now, that's not to say that sometimes you have to you you don't draw a line in the sand because otherwise, you know, morality wouldn't matter, right and wrong wouldn't matter, good and evil wouldn't matter, and those things fucking do matter. But at the same time, that's usually not how life is. You know, we're, no. that's it's not that polarized, but we we get it made out to be. So you know. Is what it is, and but that's what I'm reading. And, and <laughs> so what are you listening to? No, but in the dieharders, it's it's not some of these folks on both sides. 
they make it like the world's going to end if, you know, that's it's the end of suburbs if, if we know it, if Biden wins, or it's the end of, uh, you know, the America and freedom as we know it, if Trump wins again. It's just, guys, the world's going to go on. It, all these freedoms don't just disappear because one guy you don't like is going to be in the White House. Like mm-hmm. our country set up a certain way. So we don't have dictators making those types of calls. It's just, I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. So, yeah. yeah. Democracy only ends if we let it end. And by, by we, I mean the people of this, this country who have more power than they think they do sometimes. Corey so. Cook, 2022. Yeah. No. <laughs> All right, sir. What are you listening to? One of the big things is uh, Outkast's third album. Aquemini, considered a classic of the hip-hop world. I've been jamming to that lately. I think one of the albums uh, just hit like its 30th anniversary or something like that. I don't remember. Um, some kind of big anniversary, not 30th. So I was like, oh, I got to revisit uh, some Outkast work. My One of my favorite rap groups of all time. Saw in concert at SUNY Brockport. I believe it was our junior year or maybe senior, my junior year, senior year, around 2000. One, I believe. So so that was cool. Also, the instrumentalist, vocalist, slash saxophonist, guy by the name of Terrace Martin. I've been kind of digging some of his work. A lot of it's kind of this jazzy hip-hop fusion, but I, I got a kick out of one of the songs, which was titled Breakfast Sandwich. No idea why. There's no lyrics to it because it's just an instrumental song, but I got a kick out of that. Breakfast Sandwich by Terrace Martin. Go do yourself a favor and Spotify it. Nice. That's what I'm listening to. And the usual no. like news on the radio, especially with all this election stuff going on. So, yep. Um, for me, just still listening to the last Druid. I've got about four hours left to go on that. I thought and, you were going to uh, say the last dragon. I was like, what no. the, uh, the audio book? <laughs> <laughs> no, the last Druid. It's a, it's um no, that's an audio book by Terry Brooks. I'm almost got four, about a four hours left in that. And then, um, uh, I've been listening to imagine dragons. So yeah, here and there. And, uh, that's pretty much it for me. Not, 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 not much on the, on the listing front. This, this. Hey, we got them. We got, we got Mando back though. I love how Carl Weathers calls him Mando. Mando. Yeah, Mando. <laughs> Sorry. Had to, had to revisit. Mando. All right, folks, that's Corey Cook. I'm Luke Mayo. That's episode 35 of Gladiator. We will see you chumps next week as always. And remember kids, all movies, are subjective. Your mileage may vary. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.